My hopes and prayers are always with you. Okay? Yeah. Uh, how are things going? Pretty good. Uh, compared to yesterday? Yes. Good. Uh, you know, life is not easy. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. But hopefully, soon, mm. you'll be better and better and better mm. and better yeah. and better. Okay? My hopes and prayers are always with you. Mm. You have a great, great, great family. Mm. Okay. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Ben Taub Hospital is a level one trauma center located in downtown Houston. Its wards are typically crammed with gunshot victims and the survivors of catastrophic automobile accidents. The voice you just heard was Michael Siegel, a trauma social worker at the hospital, speaking with one of his patients in the neurological ICU. He works with both patients and their families at a time of their greatest vulnerability. It's intense, often emotionally challenging work, but it's also deeply meaningful to Michael's clients, like this patient's mother. It's very, very helpful, very, very kind. Every day, every day he will come and walk. Say, you need help? You need anything? If you need help, let me know. Up to today, as you stand, I don't know how we take thank you. I don't know. I don't have money. I don't have work. Where should I be packing? 24 hours I'm here. Thank you, but um, I'm here for y'all, yes. not the other way around. Can I have a hug? Yeah. Can I have a hug? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you, God bless you. God bless you. You might think of the life of a trauma social worker as grueling and stressful, and you'd be right. Three quarters of all social workers report high levels of burnout. It even has a name, social worker burnout syndrome reflecting the fact that 40 to 50% of social workers have to leave the profession prematurely. But that's not Michael Siegel. He himself suffered a traumatic injury, but what came out of that was a purpose-driven career. I view um, my life as a ministry, helping people. I believe that in order to experience beauty in life, you have to experience some bitterness. It took me a while, but I learned that. I hope to show people uh, in the hospital that life can go on. And like a growing number of his peers, just hanging it up at some predetermined retirement age doesn't sound particularly appealing. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what's Mike Siegel like at 89? You know what? I don't know the future, uh, but I hope I'll be like my dad. Um, uh, retired, quote unquote, but uh, still actively um, visiting people in the hospital, things like that. So what does retirement even mean when your work is your calling and you never want to give it up? From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, The Retirement Ladder. I'm Ken Stern. Support for this podcast comes from Corbridge Financial, making it possible for more people to take action in their financial lives for today and tomorrow. 
Learn more at CorbridgeFinancial.com. And speaking of taking action, helping people take more control over their money is why Gene Chatsky started the Her Money Podcast. From understanding your money personality to taking steps to earn more, spend wisely, invest for tomorrow, and protect it all, the Her Money Podcast can help you get there. Subscribe to Her Money with Gene Chatsky wherever you get your podcasts. It may be his ministry now, but Michael didn't start off wanting to be a trauma social worker. He wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon and was well on his way to pursuing that goal as a student at the University of Texas. But fate, in its ugliest form, pushed Michael off course. When I was 19, I was a student at the University of Texas. Um, my girlfriend, Sharon, said, Mike, it's late. I need to back to get back to my dormitory. I said, fine. We head back to our dormitory. On the way back, Michael pulled into a gas station on the way to the dorm and said to his girlfriend, Hey, Sharon, we're here. I'll be right back as soon as I pay for the gas. Unfortunately for me, the store was in municipal robbery. One of the three thieves forced me to the back of the store to the cooler. He pushed me down and shot me in the back of the head. He thought I was dead. Everybody thought I was dead, but I was not. I, I was unconscious. I do not remember anything. But my girlfriend, Sharon, who's now my wife, remembers. Nobody wants to be the victim of crime, victim of trauma. Uh, my parents, Sharon, nobody wants that. But life goes on. And eventually, I overcame. Okay? I have many obstacles, but I learned before I was shot, I could do 500 things really well. Now I can only do 200 things really well. Uh, I was constantly dwelling on the 300 things I'd lost. But eventually, I learned to focus on the 200 things I could still do. Um, I didn't want to be a doctor. I wanted to be a, a surgeon. So uh, instead of working with people in surgery, I trained to be a social worker helping people with their broken spirits. The mini-march shooting shifted Michael's path, but in the Rubik's Cube of life, it also altered Sharon's trajectory. He didn't speak for two months. He didn't utter a word. And I was very good at, and his mom was too, we were very good at figuring out what he wanted to say to communicate. And he was very interesting because I worked with a lot of people who couldn't speak, who had strokes, mainly strokes. And a lot of them would write, but Mike didn't necessarily write words. He would draw pictures. It was very interesting. I didn't have many patients that did that, but we, we, I was good at guessing what he wanted mm. and- um, Brilliant. Fortunately, his language, speech and language came back and here he is. He's the miracle, not me. No. He is the miracle. Sharon was my girlfriend at the time. My dad 
told her that um, the neurosurgeon said, Mike is probably going to die. And if he survives, he will be a vegetable. Um, hearing that, um, my dad tells Sharon uh, to get on with her, with her life. Sharon merely just said, but Mike is my life. She dropped out of college to be with me, uh, to help me. Uh, uh, for that and so much more, I'll always love her very much. She did drop out, though she's reluctant to take as much credit as Michael wants to give her. Well, I did, but only one semester. He makes it sound like it was my whole college. <laughs> it was one semester. Um, so I'm a native Houstonian, a rare one. I met Mike in high school. We were high school sweethearts. He was a year older. He went to University of Texas and I followed. Um, we dated, I mean, we broke up, but we still dated during college. We broke up a couple of times in high school, whatever. And when I went to UT, when I was a freshman is when he was shot. He was a sophomore and it was, devastating, traumatic. Um, but I guess I believed in him. He was strong. He was athletic. He was, should I say, um, how should I say it? Strong-willed, stubborn, like he he's a fighter. Um, I knew his personality. And for some reason, even though I guess I was naive, I thought to myself, if he lived through the night, that he would be okay. I just had faith that if he survived, he would survive and push through. More than most, Sharon understood the long path back. Ironically, I was studying to be a speech pathologist. I had always, my sister was a physical therapist. She worked in rehab here. And I always liked science and I always liked medicine. So from day one, I knew that's what I wanted to study. So I was in the... Uh, communication disorders program studying speech pathology and Mike made fun of me he said are you sure that's what you want to do you want to go pa 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 ta 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 like he didn't understand the breadth and how it would be vital importance in his life and his recovery Sharon walked alongside Michael every step of the long journey to recovery but is the person who comes out the other side of traumatic surgery the same one who went in? Can you um, can you describe yourself to our listeners so that they won't have a picture? Uh, sure. Uh, um, yeah. Typically, uh, most people think I'm a stroke uh, patient um, because I'm 62. Uh, most people thought I had a brain injury. My right side works very little. Uh, I walk uh, with a big limp. Uh, uh, my right arm uh, works very little, but I try. My voice, uh, one of my vocal cords is paralyzed. The other 
works very little, hmm. but I try. Uh, there was some, um, a lot, of, well, a lot of issues. Um, that's why they didn't, didn't think I would survive. The area of my brain that affects speech, uh, the bullet went through. So that's why my parents were praying and praying. I could at least say one or two words. I could not say anything for weeks. Then six weeks later, they said, please, please, please say one or two th words. Now they're praying and praying a shut up. <laughs> Physically, Michael was diminished by the shooting, but his aspirations were not. I trained to be a social worker, helping people with their broken spirits. You know what? Uh, it was not easy for me to give up my, on my dream, but I learned that there were times in life that dreams can be set and other dreams can also be accomplished. We visit Michael in a small shared office at Ben Taub and talk with him about the long road back. Do you want to show us the, the trauma ward? Sure. Uh, my office, but I'm never there. These are Hello. angels. I'm not that good, but these are angels. So, so tell us about your start. Uh, you decided, I'm going to take it a little bit chronologically. Um, uh, you decided uh, that you wanted, you were changing your career. Um, you were um, going to work with trauma patients. Uh, how does one go about doing that? What's the path? Well, it's a long process um, for me. Uh, when I was at... Uh, University of Texas. I went to, um, um, I took a class where I volunteered at with other head injured people. I focused on therapy of other uh, head injured individuals. Uh, that was my last class at UT, okay? I loved it. So I went from wanting to fixing, uh, fix people with their broken bones to uh, fixing people's spirits. I went to graduate school for social work in Houston. I learned how to speak with empathy, okay? So was, did you have anyone, so uh, you talk about helping... Uh, fix people's spirits, who helped fix your spirit? I mean, you went through traumatic brain injury, traumatic head injury um, uh, that most people can't even conceive of. Um, who, helped, who helped you? Was there someone uh, everybody. like you? Yeah. Everybody. My family. Uh, Sharon um, was unbelievable. She dropped out of college to be with me for a semester. Uh, um, uh, my friends were always there, okay? Yeah. Um, sometimes 
it didn't work, but other times it helped a lot. Um, my dad, my mom, my mom's main goal was to get me back in life. Another vital person in this recovery was his dad. Tell us about your dad. We were off. We weren't taping. You were telling us about telling me about your dad and what he did and his role in your life. My dad uh, was one of my models. Um, uh, he's a he was a rabbi. He just passed away. Um, a rabbi of the largest con uh, conservative synagogue in the country. Um, uh, and when I was hurt, he was hurt also. Um, he didn't know what to do, uh, but he wanted to get me better. Um, so he worked 8 o'clock at night at the synagogue, uh, nine o'clock uh, with me. Uh, the rehab hospital had a had a real rule. Visiting hours were over at I don't know eight thirty, but my dad didn't care uh, if it helped his son. He would be there for me. There was a rabbi exception to the uh, 8.30 rule. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> I think it's too late now. But yeah. uh, um, uh, I mean, it's interesting. I'm just trying to put myself in his shoes. I mean, he's a man who spends his life ministering to people, to helping them, uh, and now having to do it with his son. That must have been very hard. I would imagine. Yeah. But um, he helped me, and I help other people. He's my model, and I learned from him. Even after 30 years on the trauma wards, Michael's passion for his work still burns bright. Back up. Uh, when I was shot in rehab, uh, my birthday happened, okay? Uh, nobody of the staff knew it was my birthday, but my family knew. So I thought, what everybody who's in the hospital wants to feel special. So I wanted to make people feel special on the birthday as well as every day. So I and with another doctor, uh, a doctor, Dr. Mehta, who I had no idea who he was, came up with the program. Um, we have had eight years of birthdays, maybe 2,500 birthdays. Patients and... Yeah. yeah. So every morning I check the census on the computer. Of everyone in Bentop Hospital. Yeah. To see whose birthday it is. It's the first thing you do every morning. Correct. Uh, 
Uh, any of them stand out? Are there any that... Uh, many. Yeah. Can you tell us about one of them? Actually, um, there was uh, a family who walked into the a convenience store, shot in the head, 19, like I was. Uh, the doctors said, there's very little hope. Uh, the nurses said, wait until you see Mike, because it was in the middle of the night. So when I got there the next morning, the family migrated to me. I said, after I heard what happened, I said, nobody can predict the future, um, but my hopes and prayers are always with you. Um, and you get better and better and better and better. Uh, not in the beginning, but uh, it was like a like the well, like the stock market. Okay, <laughs> uh, uh, it's up and down, up and down, but it's always uh, going up. Not always, but eventually, uh, higher and higher. Do you know what happened to him? Yes, uh, he's doing great. For 30 years, Michael has thrown himself into his work, his ministry. And it's hard for him to think about giving that up. He had a taste of what it would be like, and he didn't particularly like it. Sharon explains. Well, I think that he's happy helping others and being in person. The pandemic was horrible. Working from home was horrible for him. Being confined in this condo was horrible. He's a people person and he needs to be there to help people. And seeing him so unhappy was, it was hard. It can be difficult to figure out what's next in an era when good health can mean many more productive years. But the models for how to live our supersized lives are not settled. But fortunately for Michael, one character, one second act playbook looms large. My dad was a wonderful person. Uh, he, anybody you ask about my dad who knows him, who, who knew him, uh, would say he's a saint. And I think you told me he never retired? Well, he was, uh, when he was 67, he stopped being Rabbi, senior Rabbi, and became Rabbi Emeritus. But um, he always worked at the synagogue, at the hospitals, um, until the pandemic. He always would visit people in the hospital. I mean, he was known for that, I think. Always comforting people, but he performed life cycle events up until my daughter's wedding was yeah. the last wedding he performed in LA, which was five years ago this February. And he passed away at, he was 94. So he was, what, 89 when he, I'm not good at math. Yeah, pretty much. He was 89 yeah. when he did her wedding. 
But it, people still called him to do life cycle events in, um, you know, he was a strong presence. Yeah. Is, is he, Mike, is he sort of your retirement or your non-retirement role model in some ways? He's my role model, period. And for Michael, what will retirement look like for a man who has committed himself to never retiring? So um, is it actually possible to work at Harris Health uh, until you're 89? No. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. We'll see. <laughs> Michael's retirement will certainly bear no resemblance to a traditional retirement. The mission will continue, but like his father before him, perhaps we will take on new and exciting forms. Think of it as a new stage, a topic that my producer Camilo Garzon was eager to explore with Michael and Sharon. And, and I would like to know, as you imagine that first day of retirement, how would that look like? Like, how would your life actually change? That, that's a very good question. I'll probably slow down at the hospital, spend uh, more time uh, speaking, writing, but it's going to change. The place will be modified, but my goal is always the same, to spread hope. 43 years have passed since that fateful night at a gas station in Austin, and the consequences are still spooling out in the life of Michael, Sharon, and their families, on the trauma wards of Ben Taub, but also with a man who tried to execute Michael that night. We wanted to know whether the universe would balance things out. If I do the math, uh, if you say he was in for 40 years, um, almost. Uh, that means he must have just gotten out, or if he's still alive. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, they uh, wrote me a letter saying he's out. Have you any idea what happened to him since then? I asked the uh, parole person, did he try to contact me? Because I never was contacted. But maybe he um, tried, mailed the letter, but he said no. I'm Jewish, and in order to forgive a person, the person has to ask for forgiveness, but he never did. Would you like that opportunity to forgive him? You even think about that. It was just uh, yeah. too much in the back rear view yeah. mirror. Look, you know what? I believe life goes on. Um, I don't hold a grudge uh, so much to him, but I just want to go on with my life helping people. What happened that night, February the 18th, 1981, was a very negative thing for me. I walked into the store February the 17th. Horrible experience. Uh, but I learned that life can be beautiful because on February the 17th, 2000, 
17, uh, my daughter got married. Instead of walking into the convenience store, I was able to walk with my wife, my daughter, down the aisle. And now we have a granddaughter. Jeez. Uh, there she is? Yeah. Ella. Ella. Yeah, she's beautiful. Uh, she looks like her uh, mother, who looks like my uh, wife. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Bump, and Camillo Garzone. Music for this episode was provided by Audio Jungle and Ramteen Arablui. Support for this podcast comes from Corbridge Financial, making it possible for more people to take action in their financial lives for today and tomorrow. Learn more at CorbridgeFinancial.com. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.